Thank you, quartet. Thank you, choir. Thank you, instrumentalists, for leading us so beautifully in worship. Last Sunday, we began a new sermon series from Luke's second volume, The Acts of the Apostles. If you missed it, go to firstamarillo.org and you can watch it or print it off or listen to it however you'd like to catch up with us. And I, I pray that you will watch listen or read every week so you can have the complete 12 sermon series on the Acts of the Apostles. We went through volume one, the Lucan Gospel, and now we're going through volume two, the, the Acts of the Apostles. Today in Acts 2, 1 through 13, we have a panhandle passage indeed. Someone has said the search for energy is the modern history of mankind. I certainly understand that perception, and in fact, some would argue that the current geopolitical situation, the climate around the world, is greatly influenced by the battle over sources of energy. We search for new sources of energy all the time, not to be dependent upon other countries, biomass and geothermal and nuclear and hydroelectric and solar. And some, some have even said we need to capture that methane gas produced by cow manure, that that would be a, well, we'd be in good shape in a panhandle, wouldn't we? But that really might be a mood point, after all, because there's no efficient way of passing gas, sorry, from cows to our homes and automobiles, at least not yet. But wind, we can testify, wind has absolutely no limits as a source of energy, especially in the panhandle. I read yesterday in the newspaper, after I'd already written my sermon, that Plainview is getting a, a lot of new wind energy coming their way. Did you know that if you go to weather.com, in all of America, the windiest city is listed as Amarillo, Texas, wherever that is. It is a windy place. The windiest place in America. In fact, poor Lubbock is just number three. There are always a few steps behind us. They're just number three. So if anybody could appreciate a sermon on wind today, surely you can appreciate it. The pastor at First Baptist Lubbock, Bobby Dagnall, invited a friend from Alabama to go turkey hunting, and they were there hiding from the turkeys, and it was a, a West Texas kind of wind, and it was blowing, and dirt was in their eyes, and then sand was in their teeth, and it was just 9 o'clock a.m. By then, it kept blowing, and the guy from Alabama said, can I ask you a question? Well, go ahead. He said, do y'all have a lot of suicides around here? Well, my brother was here two weeks ago. You remember that really windy Friday and Saturday two weeks ago? I believe it was about two weeks ago. I have two skylights in our family room, and the wind started around those things at about 40 miles per hour, and you feel like you're in the middle of a tornadic wind in my family room because of the skylights. And my brother, not knowing that other story, said about 10 a.m., can I ask you a question? I said, sure, he said. Do y'all have an unusually high suicide rate around here? I, you know, those Eastern boys just can't take it, can they? You've got to be tough to live out here with all the wind. 
Well, long before we were looking to the wind to turn on our lights and fire up our furnaces, the early church was dependent upon wind as the sole source of power. Now, the Greek word for spirit is the same as the Greek word for wind, which is the same as the Greek word for breath. They're all the same. This baptism for which the disciples are waiting in the Acts of the Apostles is the very wind of God, the breath of God, the Spirit of God to blow and begin the church. Blow, wind, blow. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Wind is a terribly powerful thing. The wind, said the prophet Ezekiel, was the Spirit of God. The prophet Ezekiel called upon the wind to blow upon the dry bones. The breath of God that filled the dry bones with new life. Ezekiel 37, 9, listen to these words. Then God said to me, Prophesy into the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may come to life. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, exceedingly a great army. And I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land, and you will know that I, the Lord, have done it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel saw the valley of dry bones, and the Lord commanded Ezekiel to call upon the breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God, and the bones came to new life. Well, that's what happens here in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 2. The Spirit of God comes in this audible sound of the wind. Our passage today, this second sermon for Acts, is about new life from the breath of God, the wind of God. It's the dawn on the day of Pentecost. Now look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. And gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. And John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait for the baptism, the blowing wind, the breath of God, the Spirit. Well, look at 1.8. Look at 1.8. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Things are about to break loose in Acts. Things are about to break open. It's the same wind that was the wind on that very first morning of all mornings as it swept across the dark waters. The wind, the breath, the spirit of creation. It's the wind again. The wind of Genesis and creation. The wind of, of creation and Ezekiel giving life to something. But this time, what is created and born is the very people of God, the church. Well, the first thing I want you to see this morning, 
Without this mighty rushing wind, there would be no birth of the church. Without this mighty rushing wind, there would be no birth of the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. It's Pentecost. Well, what does that mean? Well, Pentecost was partly an agricultural festival. It was a day when the farmers brought in the first sheaf of wheat as an offering to God and also as a prayer that the rest of the harvest would come in. But for the Jew, it's more than just an agricultural festival, a dedication of the, the first of the wheat. It was, you can see it, you can hear it, can't you? Pentecost. It is the 50th day after Passover. And Passover reminded them of their slavery in Egypt and how the death angel had come as a plague and it had passed over that lambs were slain and lives of the Jews were spared. God called them to gird their loins, to tie up their robes, and to get out of there. And then 50 days later, on Pentecost, they received the law of God. Pentecost is not only agriculture, it's receiving the Word of God, the law of God, and the purpose and a way of life as they have left Egypt and now formed God's own sacred people. Well, look at verse 2. And suddenly... There came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were waiting. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 11. These are the divine beings who are there as Jesus ascends in last Sunday's sermon. And they also say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven. This Jesus has been taken into heaven, and he'll come back just like he ascended. Well, now look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2 again. And suddenly there came same Greek word from heaven. There's no coincidence here. Jesus ascended up to heaven, and now God descends from heaven in the presence of the Spirit. Even as Jesus went to heaven, a form of God, a form of God comes from heaven, and the Spirit of God and that Holy Spirit. Joel the prophet, he had warned folks a long time ago that this was going to happen. And it will come about after this that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And on the male and female servants, I will pour forth my spirit in those days. Joel had warned them today was coming when the Spirit of God will be poured out. And when the Spirit of God's poured out, both the men and the women will preach. Get ready. The day is coming, Joel said. But not just Joel. John spoke about it too. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one who is coming, who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. Joel said it, John said it, and Jesus said it. In Luke 24, Jesus said, You are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay into the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he told them, you are about to be clothed, dressed in the power of the Spirit of God. Joel, John, Jesus, they're all saying the same thing. The day will come when the Spirit of God descends. When the Son ascends, the Spirit will descend, and the church will be born, and the people of God will have a word to preach. So they're gathered together, waiting on the promised arrival of the Spirit of God. What if the Spirit had not come? Without the Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver. There can be no understanding without the spirit of truth. There can be no fellowship without the spirit of unity. There can be no Christ-likeness apart from the character of the fruit of the spirit. A body without breath is a corpse, and a church without the spirit is dead. There could be no living people of God without the living spirit of God. Well, there's a second thing I want you to see. Have you ever thought about this? With this mighty rushing wind, with these tongues of fire, the tower, Babel, is reversed. Babel is reversed with the presence of the sound and the sight of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Accompanied by this audible presence of the Spirit, this sound of wind, there is the vision of the Spirit, the tongues of fire resting on each of those preaching the gospel. What does that mean? We see the wind, the breath being the Spirit, but what about the fire? The fire is the very presence of God. A bush burns before Moses Moses approaches and hears the thunderous voice, take off your shoes at the fire, at the fire you are on holy ground. God leads the children of Israel by the pillar of fire at night. Or in, in Deuteronomy 4, 24, God is a consuming fire on Mount Sinai. And if we didn't get it there, the author of Hebrews says, our God Hebrews 12 is a consuming fire. And John had said, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming will baptize you, Luke 3, with the Spirit. And what accompanies the presence of the Spirit? Fire. Here's the fire of the Spirit of God. Fire joins the wind as the emblems of the Spirit's power. God himself is in the representation of the fiery tongue upon them, on them, in them, and they are submersed, overwhelmed, drowning in the Spirit of God. Verse 4, and thus filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, this is, we've been doing 1 Corinthians on Sunday night. We wrapped that up last week. In 1 Corinthians, we encountered something called glossolalia, this 
language of the Holy Spirit that is not codified as any known language. Well, this is not that. That's real, and that's in the church in Corinth, but this is xenolalia. It's the miraculous speaking of a language unknown to you, but known to your listener. The eruption of the Holy Spirit, the wind and the fire, it leads to the disciples proclaiming in languages that are not their own. And it leads to absolute bewilderment by the bystanders. Look at verse 7. And they were amazed, marveled, saying, Aren't all these guys who are preaching in all these languages, aren't they from Galilee? Well, we know where these guys are from. And how is it that though they are from Galilee, that we are hearing the gospel in our own language? Notice all the nations represented. What does this mean? Some even think, verse 13, that they're drunk. The gift of Pentecost is the gift of something to say, Tom Long says. It is a word to speak in the brokenness and the tragedy of the world that is unlike any other word. Did you notice what happened when the church was given the Spirit? It stood up and it spoke. It moved from silence and waiting to language and word and preaching. It talked and the whole world heard the good news in its own languages. As the prophet Joel said in the later days, I will pour forth my spirit and your boys and your girls will have a word to say. The spirit comes and the church has something to say. What the church has to speak is this. That life now and the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that life is stronger than death, that hope is deeper than despair, and that every tear one day will be dried. That is the word of the gospel. It is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. That death and pain one day will be no more. That is the only word of the church. It's the gospel. The Spirit comes and the gift is a word to preach. The whole question of Acts 1 is how will God extend his kingdom? His saving sovereign rule. How will it get bigger and broader and deeper? In other words, how can we fulfill Genesis 12, 3? In you, Israel, Abraham, your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's happening right here and right now in Acts 2. All the nations hear the word, the word of the church in their own language. And all that Babel confused is made clear. 
You remember that promise comes in Genesis 3 that in you all the nations will be blessed right after the, the story of the Tower of Babel where men in their arrogance are trying to be like God and build up to God and God gives them all a different language and they can't communicate and therefore they disperse over the earth. They are separated. Humanity is separated by languages. And now with the gift of the Spirit and the power of the Word, what Babel had undone is now recreated and the preaching of the Word of the Gospel in every language. What Luke is telling you is that nothing less than the overturning of the curse of Babel has taken place. And God is powerfully signaling that the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations has occurred with the Word and the Spirit here and now. Here's the third thing I want you to see. You can't organize or box in a wild wind. You can't organize, and if anybody's ever tried to organize the wind, it would be the Baptist. You cannot organize or box in a wild wind. We try, don't we? Isn't there a committee could do that? The wind. Box in the wind. The Spirit of God will not be controlled. It is immeasurable. It is uncontrollable. It is the fierce presence of God that does what it wants, where it wills, in God's way. I can preach the gospel until I'm blue in the face. But unless the Spirit of God, the wind is blowing... The word has no power. As Will Williman says, we read this text and it's a strange story to us. It's something beyond the bounds of the imagination. It's miraculous and it's inscrutable. It's incomprehensible. It's an origin, this power of God, this freedom that is beyond anything that we can understand or explain. A man wanted to ballroom dance with his wife, so he went and got a book, a kit on how to ballroom dance that had the little footprints you lay out on the floor, and he, he measured, and he laid out the footprints upon the floor, and he, he took the book, and he was reading about which foot goes where, and he did everything it said. He swayed when it said sway. He leaned when it said lean. He had them all arranged, and he did it perfectly. He went and got his wife. He thought she'd be so pleased. Look what I've done, honey. Uh, Methodist, of course, not a Baptist. Look what I've done, honey. And he, he laid the footprints out on the floor, and he's reading the book, and he was talking and dancing, and he, it, it was so it was pitiful. It was so wooden. It just didn't work. It, it was one step to the fore, one step to the side. He was so pleased. He got finished. He said, honey, I didn't miss a single step. I killed it, didn't I? She said, yeah, you killed it, all right. But I followed the rules. I laid out the pattern. I didn't miss a step. But you forgot the most important thing, the wife said. You never turned on the music. She went over and popped in the CD and turned on the music, had him put the book down, took him into her arms, and he began to actually dance in rhythm to the music. Sometimes we try to do church without the Spirit, just by the book, but forget the music, the wind, the Spirit. 
If we miss the music, if we're without the Spirit, it's wooden and mechanical and predictable and flat. Jesus knew that. He introduces his disciples to the song maker of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Here's a, a last thing I want you to see. Now, don't be shocked by this, but we're all Pentecostal. We are all Pentecostal. So many times as Baptists, we have mistakenly confused the Holy Spirit's presence in worship with American Pentecostal movement. If we're not careful, we can neglect the power and the presence and the power of the Spirit of God and just say, well, that's not our brand of faith, you know. Well, you maybe you've heard about the young couple that was living in Arkansas and they got involved in a church that was of the Pentecostal movement, and there was shouting and clapping and running the aisles, and they were trying to convince their grandma that she ought to attend that church. You should have seen it, Grandma, the young man said. The Holy Spirit was really there when we worshiped. Grandma just kept rocking back and forth and wouldn't say a word. And Grandma said, the young woman, you should have seen the preacher. He shouted till he was red in the face. And people were popping up and praising the Lord everywhere. It was unbelievable, Grandma. Grandma just kept rocking back and forth, unimpressed. And finally, the young man said, Grandma, don't you like our new church, the one with the Spirit? Aren't you listening to what I'm saying? Grandma finally spoke. Honey, let me say it to you this way. I don't care how loud they shout. I don't care how high they jump. It's what they do when they come back down that counts. The Holy Spirit's present in worship should never be confused with a style of worship. It's not emotionalism. It's not an unpredictable, unorganized like Corinth, and Paul fusses at them for that. It, it, the presence of the Spirit is not something about being flamboyant. If you think that's what the Spirit is, that's, that's just noise. It, it's, it's not that. The worship style, one doesn't lend itself. They're all fine, but one doesn't lend itself any more to the, the presence of the Holy Spirit than the other. A Pentecostal versus an Episcopalian, there isn't one style of worship that the, the Spirit desires more than another. True worship is always worship in spirit and in truth. We are empowered ourselves as we sing and we preach by the Holy Spirit of God. We are no longer willing to accept the mundane or the mediocre. Life led in the spirit refuses to go back to the predictable, the controllable spirituality of the flesh. When we are driven by the Spirit of God, it is not a form of worship. It is a presence of God in our midst. And it's even scary. It was scary in Acts 2. It ought to be scary here this morning. Because empowered by the Spirit, we become a dangerous people. When the church begins to live for the kingdom of God rather than our own earthly kingdoms, we are frightening people to those on the left and we're frightening people to those on the right. For indeed, we march, or should I say today, we dance entirely to the beat of a different drum. Peter stands up 
in the midst of this blowing wind and violent wind and flaming tongues in Acts 2 when everybody thinks that they're drunk and the question is, what does this mean? It means the church is being empowered. It means Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. When the Spirit comes upon a church, that church tells the word. That's how you know. The church empowered by the Spirit preaches the gospel. They stood up and they preached the word. The Spirit comes upon us then and now that we might, in whatever their language, tell the story of Jesus. Are you a Pentecostal believer? Are you empowered by the Spirit in such a way that you can do no other than stand up and tell the word? Is telling the story, the gospel, the good news of of life through death, of forgiveness through crucifixion, is that a top priority for you? Is the life of this community, this church called First Baptist Church, so ordered and empowered by the Spirit to tell the story of Jesus wherever we are, not just at 12th and Tyler? Are we ready to leave the upper room and to go out and about beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth? Are we ready to leave the upper room and go out with the power of the word of the gospel? Right in the middle of the madness, the blowing wind of the Spirit, that audible sound, And the visions of tongues of fire. Peter stands up and says, shh. See, there was order. Shh. And he told them exactly what it meant. Next next week's sermon, Peter's sermon. Let us pray. O God, may we be a people indwelt by a fiery spirit, baptized not only with water but with your Holy Spirit in such a way that corporately and individually we stand up with a word. Of all the words ever uttered in the history of humanity, only these words really matter. We are sinners. The Son of God was crucified to receive the wrath of God on our behalf. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, death could not hold him. He he arose 
He ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return for his spirit-empowered people, his church that, are, that is birthed even today in Acts 2. May those who need to hear that word hear it today. May those who need to preach that word preach it today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is 389. Maybe you would say that today is your day to receive not only baptism by water in the next few days, but to receive baptism by the Spirit, to call Jesus Lord. Maybe you're here today and you want to be a part of a, a Pentecostal church. We're that kind of church and dwelt by the Spirit, standing up and preaching the Word. We invite you to be part of our our Pentecostal church. Our hymn invitation is 389. If you have a decision to make, I'll meet you at the front. Stand together as we sing.